0: Hello, Fem fans. Before we jump into our amazing interview today, I wanted to remind you of Giving Tuesday. For those outside of the United States, Giving Tuesday is November 30th, and it's a day of donating and giving back to nonprofits in your community. Please consider making a donation to FemTech Focus. We are a nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. If you think the work we're doing with the podcast, virtual community, market research, and events should continue, then please show your support this month. We've sweetened the deal because if you donate $100 or more, you can select from a lineup of donor gifts, including pink uterus earrings, a vulva cookie cutter, a Mental Health Matters keychain, a 3D printed clitoris, or a female reproductive organ watercolor painting. Again, you can pick any of these donor gifts and it'll be shipped to you if you donate $100 or more. Go to femtechfocus.org and make your end of your donation today. Tax receipts are available upon request.
1: Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Chetcan, integrative gastroenterologist and author. Femtech to me is women making their way in the world powerfully, purposefully, and with passion. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness.
0: Welcome to the Femtech Focus Podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is brought to you by the Reproductive Health Innovation Summit, taking place in Boston on February 15th and 16th. This conference is the destination for uncovering what is next in fertility, contraception, and maternal health. From AI to big data to genetic testing, laboratory automation, consumer wearables, non-hormonal devices, and solutions and new care delivery models. Add to the innovation and attend alongside their leading network of biotech companies, startups, femtech startups, insurers, CROs, investors, med device companies, researchers, pharmaceuticals. HCPs, and advocacy groups to drive innovation at the convergence of healthcare and technology. Visit www.reproductivehealthinnovationusa.com to learn more. That's www.reproductivehealthinnovationusa.com. Okay, Fem fans, in today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Robin Shutken. She's an integrative gastroenterologist, founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness, and author of three books called The Bloat Cure, The Microbiome Solution, and Gut Bliss. This is a super informative and fun episode where we discuss the difference between women and men's GI tract. Spoiler alert... Turns out there's a lot of differences. We also talk about how hormones from pregnancy, menstruation, and menopause changes your stool. Yes, I'm referring to period poop. Dr. Robin did not shy away from the topics we are all wondering about, but never ask. Learn more about her practice and books at gutbliss.com. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Robin, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, you came from an intro from Brooks Bell, a new friend of mine here in the Raleigh area. Um, and she is all about gut health. And she said, I'm so upset, Britt. You don't have any gut health, you know, a gastroenterologist on your show. And I said, well, that's because women's health has so many things to cover. Uh, who should
1: I interview? And you were the number one recommended person. Well, thank you so much for that, Brooks. She's, Brooks is doing, as you know, incredible work in the colorectal cancer foundation sort of arena, raising awareness, and especially about, not just about women with colon cancer, but about young women with colon cancer. And she is, man, she's like a one woman army with the work she's doing. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, she really is. She's so awesome. So I'm so grateful to her. We have you on the show now. So let's talk about you. What's your background?
1: Um, tell us about your journey and then what you're doing today. I'm a gastroenterologist, and I like to say I'm an integrative gastroenterologist, which I also think I sort of made up, like, well, what's that? And it really just means that I'm paying attention to the role of the gastrointestinal tract as it relates to the rest of your body. So it's kind of common sense, right? So I'm not dividing you up into little systems, like your pulmonary system, your renal system, your central nervous system, your digestive system. I'm looking at the digestive system as part of a larger system, which is you, and you know, when you think about it, Brittany, think about where the gut is located. It's right in the middle of your body, so it really is kind of the engine and the center. And then you have all these different, you know, other systems that literally feed off the gastrointestinal tract. So this whole idea of integrative gastroenterology is just literally integrating the idea of the gastrointestinal tract as being central and connected to the other parts of the body. And my my story for how I became a gastroenterologist actually starts with my dad, who is an orthopedic surgeon and an older brother, who is also an an orthopedic surgeon who does mostly spine surgery. So I was in medical school at Columbia and I thought, right, I'm going into the family business. I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And literally within about eight minutes of my orthopedic surgery rotation, my third year of medical school, I was like, yeah, this is not for me. And not (laughs) that it's not a really interesting field, but you know, it was just, there's a lot of hammering and sawing and it was very, um, you know, there's a lot of carpentry involved and carpentry is great, but it wasn't really what I <laughs> was interested yeah, in doing. Carpentry in the body sounds like a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, <laughs> you know, this, and then I thought, well, maybe I will do general surgery, but what I found about surgery and the surgical subspecialties is that so much of what's going on happens in the operating room, right? And that makes sense because if you're a surgeon, duh, you're operating, you're in the operating room, but then they kind of hand the patient over to somebody else when you get out of the operating room. And I didn't like that. I sort of wanted to have full ownership, if you will, of the patient from start to finish. And um, and honestly, you know, the residency programs in surgery were a little hierarchical for me. It was a little kind of yes sir, no ma'am, you know chain of command and um, that, that wasn't so appealing also obviously once you finish your training everything's different but gastroenterology was also procedure oriented like some of the surgical specialties But I like that it was an equal opportunity employer. You know, we saw men and women in my practice. I see a lot more women, but in my training, I'd say it was pretty even. We Mm -hmm. see young, we see old and, you know, everybody has a digestive tract. And for most people at some point in their life, their their digestive tract acts up. And that's where I come in. So I felt like it was broadly applicable for, you know, a wide range of what people are experiencing, particularly now.
0: Yeah, and so you became a gastroenterologist, and and what happened next? uh, Because
1: you're doing a lot of other things now. I am. Then I then I grew up. So I did all my (laughs) training in New York. I was at Columbia for about eight years for medical school for residency. I did a year as chief resident there, and then I headed downtown to Mount Sinai Hospital, where I did my gastroenterology fellowship. And I have to tell you, like, fantastic experience at both institutions. Both very different in terms of I think the flavor of the training, but both fantastic. And then I left New York in 1997 and came to DC to join the faculty at Georgetown. I had an older sister who lives here, who's a, she's a, a judge, a federal judge. We're super proud of her. She's doing my some really hard,
0: hard work. You have awesome
1: professionals <laughs> in your family. Holy moly. <laughs> she's um So she, she'd been here for a long time. And uh, at the time my brother was here finishing his medical training. So I moved here joined the faculty at Georgetown where I've, I've been a part of that faculty since 1997, which has also been a wonderful community. And I was a full-time sort of academic gastroenterologist for almost 10 years. And during that time, I had a little of what I just have to call an awakening, quite frankly, in really coming to realize a more central role of food as medicine and sort of what you can do as um, as a person to affect your digestive health through what you eat and how you live, et cetera, which wasn't something that was really a central theme in my medical training in the 80s, in the late 80s. And it was really you know, it was kind of a revelation to me, Brittany, honestly, that, wow, you change your diet and things change in your gut. And it's still kind of revelatory to a lot of people, I think, including a lot of my colleagues who are like, really? When people change their diet, they get better. So it's not it's not really part of the medical industrial complex, if you will, this idea of, you know, changing your diet to impact your health. But I started to see it with, um, with a lot of the patients I was seeing. And shockingly in 1997, when I joined the faculty at Georgetown, I was the first woman on the faculty in gastroenterology, which seems crazy, right? Because 1997 wasn't that long ago, but that was a case. And I I will say, I think I was really well received by my male colleagues. I mean, they were a little perplexed. um, In some ways, I was a bit younger than most of them too, but generally had a warm reception, but I had a really warm reception from the patients because GI is this funny field where somewhere between 10 and 15% of the docs are female, but somewhere between 70 and 75% of the patients are female. Wow. So there's a lot of discordance between, you know, the gender of the physician and the gender of the patient. And there is generally a pretty high demand for a gender concordant physician more than in some other specialties. I think OBGYN for obvious reasons has that high um, kind of desire for a gender concordant physician and I think GI is is really up there. This amazing gastroenterologist, Dr. Grace Elta, University of Michigan and her colleagues did a study actually several years ago where they looked at women's desire for a woman in the gastroenterology clinic system for a gender concordant physician. So when you think about it, you know, during the office visit, you may be talking about your smelly gas, you may be talking about your bowel movements and your abdominal pain. And then during the procedure, it's a fairly intimate procedure also because we are essentially inserting a long scope into your rectum and threading it up through your colon. And so it's one of those fields where increasingly it's become more women in the field have become more accessible as a number of women in gastroenterology have increased. And the really interesting thing is when I finished in 97, I'd say it was a pretty good job market for women if you were well-trained, but now it's crazy. I have practices calling me all the time saying, you know, do you have any women at Georgetown who are finishing up who might want to join us? So it's flipped, right? So instead of maybe the men are getting twice as many job offers as a woman back a few decades ago, now the women are probably getting five times as many job offers as their male colleagues because of this desire for gender concordance.
0: Yeah. Do you think that part of the desire to have the same gender for your GI physician is uh, this societal, unfortunate culture of uh, like women don't poop, which we obviously do, (laughs) you know, or women don't fart or women don't talk about those things. And so
1: do you think that societal pressure goes into that office, the doctor's office? Absolutely. I, if I had a dollar for every woman who sat down in my office with me, a woman, and said, Oh, this is so embarrassing. I can't, you know, who prefaces her complaint or description yeah, of her bowel movement or her gas of precisely what she is there to talk to me about and is embarrassed to talk about it. And I think, you know, I have a pretty easy open environment in my office of people to talk to me about things. So I think it very much is, you know, the digestive tract is very much in the closet. And sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like we're still in these Victorian times as you said of like oh we don't poo and we don't fart and mm-hmm. but in our household not only do we talk about this stuff like I'm always like calling my husband honey you got to come look at this look at what I just dropped it's astounding <laughs> uh-uh. He never comes. He is just like no. There's just some. Even after 20 years of marriage, there are still some boundaries, my friend. So sometimes I literally will snap a pic. I have amazing poo pictures in my phone, not just of mine, but of patients. When my daughter was still young, now she's like, do not even think about crossing that. She's 16. She's like, you are not come in, in to examine my poo, my pee, oh to sniff my pits, God. to do any of that stuff. <laughs> but back in the day, yeah, because when people are like, well, what is it supposed to look like? You know, yeah. I can look at my phone and be like, look at this beautiful chocolatey brown color, this lovely sea, you know, look, it's almost as thick as my wrist. And, and you know, that feeling you have, right? When you have, you know, when you've been eating well, you've been hydrating, you've been moving your body, and you just have a magnificent bowel movement. And, you know, I tell people it's the ultimate detox. Like you don't need to go to Canyon ranch or (laughs) you've done done it. You've detoxed and cleansed right there in the privacy of your bathroom. So, um,
0: well, I remember you're bringing up something for me where I remember being like, maybe I was like a preteen or something. And there was some commercial for some kind of, uh, like, um, what is it called? It helps you go to the bathroom.
1: A laxative. A laxative. It It was a laxative. Right. But
0: the commercial was like, you know, going, you know, number two, only once a week, (laughs) reading a whole newspaper and sitting and the whole bathroom smelling really bad is not normal. Like you should be passing a little bit every day or whatever. I can't even remember. But I remember, I do remember being a preteen being like, really? Like oh, like I had this American paradigm of like a man with a newspaper and like once a week and just dropping it all. And I'm like, I think back to that. I'm like, my gosh, no. Like you know, I've had girlfriends that are like, yeah, I go several times a day, and you know, or you're I'm a morninger, I'm an eveninger, and it's just like those are conversations we never had, you know.
1: And I, and you speak of that when I was living in New York doing my GI fellowship, I had a, a friend who lived in the same building who was, she was a model. I remember she was very glamorous. I was always walking around with scrubs in my hair and a ponytail and she always was coming from some fashion shoot or some fit session or something but she had what we call shy bowel she was very embarrassed about anything to do with her digestive tract and she was dating actually talk about her in my first book coupleless i mean she's very well disguised but she was dating a pretty famous person and they had gone on vacation to some exotic Caribbean locale. And she literally had not pooed the whole time she was there because, you know, they're there like in the hotel room and she just, even if he was not in the hotel room, the idea that he might come back, there might be odor, there might be noise. So she'd held it for like five days and ended up with what we call a fecal impaction of just like, you know, everything shut down and locked in there. So, you know, this is just a, this is just a warning. gotta poop. We gotta, gotta, when you get that signal to go, you have got to drop it because if you don't, what you're doing is you're reverse training your bowel, right? Mm -hmm. To say, oh, don't come. And then when you want to go, you can't. So it's really important.
0: Wow. 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 This is, I'm so excited. I already knew this was going to be an <laughs> awesome episode. So um, just to finish kind of up your background, so yeah. you mentioned you've been an author. So what are some of your more recent work that you've been doing?
1: Yeah. And and actually just to, I, I mean, I just backtrack a li- yeah. little further from that because I think it's a pretty interesting story. So I was practicing fairly conventional gastroenterology at Georgetown, quite happy, started seeing a lot of women. And a lot of them had this question, which is, well, what can I do? Like, what else do you have for me besides this prescription or whatever? And I didn't have very much at the time because that was, you know, had been my more conventional training. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were experimenting with diets. It was around the time that a lot of the low carb diets were popular, Adkins, uh, South Beach, et cetera. Not great diets for the gut, by the way, because you actually need all those fibrous carbohydrates, but people were coming in on different diets. My area of expertise, if you will, is autoimmune diseases in the gut. So Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And I had patients coming in on a diet called a specific carbohydrate diet, which has been used with pretty good success for that condition. So I had to find out about this stuff. So I started researching all these different diets and nutritional theories. And it really was this whole kind of second training from what I'd learned to do colonoscopy and endoscopies really well in my training. And I'd learned all the conventional ways to approach inflammatory bowel disease and other autoimmune diseases. But this was a whole kind of second.
0: Yeah. That learning, kind of boggles, if you will. my mind that you had to teach yourself nutrition after your GI fellowship. It's isn't like that crazy. Yeah. What?
1: Isn't, yeah. there, isn't that the fuel yeah. for the engine? Like why, you know, like shocking. Right. But at the yeah. time we had no formal wow. nutrition. Training And it's still pretty, I mean, in most gastroenterology fellowship programs now, it appears, but it's still really yeah. a fairly small yeah. part of the curriculum. Yeah. So I started finding for my inflammatory bowel disease patients that using this nutritional therapy was actually working. And we did, there was a meeting in Capri, Italy, that I wanted to go to. It was a young investigators meeting. I think you had to be 31 or under. I had, was just like at the <sighs> wire, right? Like in a month, I was going to be 32. It was an all expense paid trip to Capri. And I was like, I am going to this meeting. So I decided to submit an abstract that I thought would really get their attention. So one of the nurses who worked with me in clinic, we decided to do a survey looking at the use of alternative and complementary medicine practices in a GI clinic. Now, you know, this is 20 years ago, right? So it's not like now where everybody's doing acupuncture or taking a supplement or something. Holistic everything, yeah. Right, so we did this study And we found that about 80% of the patients were doing some sort of alternative or complementary therapy. But the interesting thing, Brittany, is they were often doing it without telling their physician. It was kind of like a don't ask, don't tell Uh because of this perception that they would be ridiculed or whatever they were doing would be received in a a negative way by their physician. So they were all doing stuff and they they were taking the medication their doctor was prescribing, but they were doing other things too. So I did this abstract, submitted it, it got accepted. I was able to fly to Capri and party with the cool Italian gastroenterologist. Yeah. And it was great. But it really, it really opened my eyes. I was like, wow, so people, people are doing this stuff. It must work, right? People mm. are because most of this stuff people are paying for out of pocket. It yeah. was not being reimbursed by insurance. It still is not often. So I thought, well, people are really integrating this into their conventional whatever they're doing conventionally for their disease. And that was sort of the start. But for me, Brittany, the biggest transition, really, the biggest sort of change for me, not just professionally, but personally, really has to do with the birth of my daughter, Sydney, who's now 16. And when I had her, I was 39. So, you know, you get that stamp on your chart, advanced Mm -hmm. maternal age. If you're over 35, I was perfectly healthy and had a really good pregnancy, but at the time of the delivery, I had a little bit of a cold and a low-grade fever, so they gave me antibiotics just in case. She was taking a long time to come out, talk me into a C-section. She comes out. She's perfectly healthy, but they put her in the neonatal ICU just in case. They give her heavy dose IV antibiotics just in case. She ends up just never really recovering, like sick all the time, 20 courses of antibiotics before she was two. And again, I I talked a lot about it in in my first book, gut listen, and the second book, The Microbiome Solution. And at the time, I mean, here I am like a really well-trained doctor and I wasn't connecting the dots, right? So I can just imagine what it's like for Mm. the average person who doesn't have the benefit of a medical education. I did not connect the dots between C-section, antibiotics at birth, multiple antibiotics in childhood, and the risk of illness later on, not just common illnesses like she had where she was having colds and coughs and flus and air infections all the time because all her healthy microbes had been killed off at birth with antibiotics, but it's a huge risk for autoimmune diseases. So we know that that combination of C-section and antibiotics early on is a huge risk factor for autoimmune diseases, for allergies, for asthma, and for obesity. And that's a risk that actually follows kids for years wow. and sometimes into adulthood. And it was the same story that I was seeing in a lot of my IBD patients. Once I started asking them like, hey, are you? were you born via C-section? Uh-huh. Were you nursed? The lack of nursing is another thing. Did you receive a lot of antibiotics early? And then we started seeing data. So there was a huge meta-analysis that was published in the journal Gut right around 2014, that looked at over 7,000 kids with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and found that antibiotics early in life, in the first couple of years of life, was probably the biggest risk factor outside of Uh genetics for developing IBD. So I started to realize that we were actually creating disease. I mean, Mm -hmm. in Mm well-meaning attempts to relieve people's coughs and colds and sinus infections. Yeah. And that really kind of set me on a path, both with Sydney in terms of stopping the antibiotics, changing the diet, and then with my patients. So, you know, it's just one of those things that literally, I think there's probably not a week that goes by that I don't think about that. And like, you know, how could I have allowed them to give her like 20 courses of antibiotics before she was two? How did I not realize that? So it is one of those things that I'm like, oh, I wish I had a do-over. I'd have her at home. I'd have the (laughs) do-over, No antibiotics. But at the same time, I'm also incredibly grateful because it, the whole experience and connecting the dots really opened my eyes to, you know, what we're doing and how a lot of these autoimmune diseases are being created, right? Which is Mm -hmm. kind of an expansion of this whole concept of the hygiene hypothesis that we're too clean. We're sterilizing our bodies and our environment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think I was like one of the last, I'm 30, I'm like one of the, in my mind, one of the last generations that like. I made mud pies as a kid I made so many mud pies you know like and I played with worms and I threw rocks and I hit trees with sticks like I don't know we just made shit up and just played around outside um and then my sister is six years younger than me and she was like the first playstation you know and her childhood looked a lot like being inside you know because I childhood. like broke my wrist by riding my bike at eight in this and that and you know and it's just like and now I see kids today and they're just totally screen time is like a thing and all that yeah. so and that's you a- see
1: I mean <laughs> you you see the like you go out to restaurants right and I'm very sympathetic I have a kid yeah. I know how it is yeah. but the two-year-old the four-year-old and the six-year-old are planted in front of a screen during the whole dinner time the whole right dinner they're being babysat time, yeah. by. These screens and then you see this incredible rise of add and adhd and all these issues and you know you sort of can't help but wonder like what's yep. your relationship there's yep. a there's a great book called um nature deficit disorder last child in the woods
0: whoa is,
1: is really awesome but it is this whole it's exactly what you described like you've got to get dirty yeah Dirt, yeah. sweat, veg. That's the secret, right? Get dirty, get sweaty and eat some vegetables. That's, I love you know, it. that's pretty much I love it. it's everything so you need to know.
0: We've been kind of assuming the listeners know what your gastroenterology is, right? And so can you just quickly define like what all encompasses that?
1: Sure, it's really all the real estate from the mouth to the anus, everything in between. So if we think of the upper GI tract, it's the esophagus, the stomach, and the first part of the small intestine, the duodenum. And then in the middle, the small intestine is really the geodenum jejunum ileum, And that's what we talk about when we talk about small bowel or small intestine. We're talking about that middle part. And then the large intestine, also known as a colon, is the lower digestive tract. And then in gastroenterology, we also claim a couple of organs too. So the gallbladder, that's us, the liver, that's us. So it's liver, gallbladder spleen a little bit but that's mostly the hematologist <laughs> but the whole you know 30 foot digestive super highway that goes all the way from the mouth yeah. to the anus and one of the things I love to point out because it's really obvious but at the same time it's not so it's like my Malcolm Gladwell-esque moment in gastroenterology yes. of pointing out that when something is in your digestive tract it's actually not inside your body because your digestive tract from your mouth All the way down to the other end is just an open tunnel that passes through your body. So what's in your GI tract is actually the external environment, right? Yeah. And you you have a thin membrane, your digestive lining, that's like a fishing net with tiny little holes in it. That's really only about one cell thick. And that's a membrane that keeps all your innards, your liver, your gallbladder, your spleen, your lungs, your kidneys, your heart. That keeps all those organs safe and protected from that external environment that's flowing through your body. So, you know, when we, when we breathe, when we swallow, when we eat, we're ingesting bazillions of viruses and bacteria, toxins, different things. And that's the role of our, di- of our digestive tract to break that stuff down to decide selectively what gets absorbed in through the lining and, mm-hmm. you know, carried to different cells to be used for energy, what gets eliminated and comes out really as waste matter, a stool. And that's an incredibly complicated and complex process. And you need a really intact gut lining to do that. So mm-hmm. if you're messing up your gut lining, you know, if you're drinking too much, if you're taking too many non anti-inflammatory drugs, too many antibiotics, and doing all those things that can affect it, you're gonna make those tiny little holes big. And mm-hmm. that means stuff that normally shouldn't get through can pass through, that's what we call leaky gut, And that can end up triggering immune reactions, allergies, et cetera. So if we look at the rise of disorders like leaky gut Mm -hmm. and to some extent, irritable bowel syndrome, food allergies, a lot of it has to do with the deterioration of that epithelial gut lining and the fact that the external environment is now getting into our body.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, it's like obvious, but also have I thought about it that way? Nope. (laughs) So, it's really interesting. Well, you are on the FemTech Focus podcast, so I want to ask you, is a woman's gut different from a men's gut? You said that more patients at GI offices are women, but as there also anatomical differences and then also disproportionate GI issues. Let's talk about that.
1: We are most different in our GI tract. I think, you know, the GYNs would say, no, no, sorry. Reproductive organs. Yeah, Yeah, the reproductive organs are pretty different. I mean, we have a bunch of stuff that men don't even have. But (laughs) in in the digestive tract, we are certainly not just smaller versions of men or different versions of men. The female gut is very different and you mentioned wow. anatomic that's a great place to start okay our guts are actually longer about 10 centimeters longer and i like to point out like we have more gray matter we have longer balance <laughs> <Maybe not. laughs> but but the, that extra length we think is probably for childbearing so that we can absorb more fluid which is a main role of the colon to absorb fluid from the gut lumen back into the bloodstream so it's so that we can absorb more fluid to maintain the amniotic fluid. And that's true whether you happen to be a childbearer or not anatomically. So that what does that extra length of colon mean? It means that the female colon ha- is like a slinky, right? So the male colon, I would depict it as like a gentle horseshoe. I can do a colonoscopy in a man with my left hand and my eyes closed super fast. I, wow. I do not do that, but colonoscopy <laughs> in men is really easy colonoscopy in a woman on average could take me two or three times as long. It's all these uh-huh. twists and turns. And that's because of the extra loops. Now, my male colleagues will talk about the redundant female colon. I prefer to talk about it as the voluptuous Venus colon, Ooh. but it is definitely, you know, it's harder to navigate. So not only do we have longer colons, we were just talking about the reproductive organs. We have reproductive organs that are there for a reason, but they're also kind of in the way when it comes to the gut. So the colon has to wind its way around the uterus, fallopian tubes, ovary—that ovaries that men don't have, right? Men just have a little bitty prostate gland. So that also leads to a lot more twists and turns. And then the third anatomic thing is that women have a deeper, wider pelvis. They have Mm -hmm. what's called a gynecoid pelvis. And again, that's to allow for another human being to be in there with you. Whereas men have what's called an android pelvis, which is a more narrow pelvis. Mm -hmm. And in women, the colon tends to fall deep down into the pelvis in that wider gynecoid pelvis, where again, there's less space because of the reproductive organs. In men, most of their colon is up in their abdomen. So there's more room there. And then, so those are sort of three anatomical reasons, right? Longer colon, deeper pelvis, and um, what was it? There? Oh, reproductive, reproductive organs yes. sort of in the way. The fourth reason is a hormonal reason, which is testosterone levels. So of course, we, wow. we also have testosterone like men, but we have less of it. And testosterone helps to create a very strong, tight abdominal wall. So even a man with a big bare belly still has like a tight spanx onto that bare belly, because of the testosterone levels. And women tend to have a more flaccid, pliable abdominal wall. And so the colon can bulge out more. So it's harder for me to do colonoscopy in women more challenging, but on the flip side, like you get really good at doing colonoscopy when you do a lot of women, because it is more challenging. And that's why women tend to have more problems with bloating and constipation. So yeah. even a man, again, with a big belly may still be like, yeah, I'm not bloated. I just have a big belly. But, you know, I don't actually have bloating because of that tighter abdominal wall and the anatomical differences we talked about, uh-huh. whereas women tend to have more. And then, of course, there are hormonal differences with estrogen dominance and progesterone levels, et cetera. But those anatomical differences are very real. And again, they're they're not sort of like a design flaw. They're there. <laughs> for, for this whole reason of reproduction and perpetuation of the species, but they can create, um, a lot of digestive problems. Probably. Yeah.
0: Well, so I think we, uh, when you and I first met, we were talking about the percentage of completion for colonoscopies in women versus men. And maybe this is con- that contributes to it. Can you tell us about that?
1: Absolutely. So for years in medicine, there's been this sort of, suggestion if you will that women have a lower pain threshold and I would argue that you know if any man had 16 hours of labor and then <laughs> vaginal delivery or a c-section for that matter they would probably not agree with that but there's always been this sort of insinuation that like well you know woman you have a lower pain threshold and there's been a difference with completion rates a significant difference depending on what studies you look at mm. And what's really interesting is that is also lower after C-section, but that's because C-section is surgery and there's often scarring. So even after you, sorry, not after C-section, after hysterectomy, I meant to say. So if you say, okay, well, that's because the uterus is in the way, even after a total abdominal hysterectomy, where you've taken out the uterus, you've taken out the fallopian tubes, and even when you take out the ovaries, so you're like, okay, there's tons of room here. The rates are still low, but that's because of the scar tissue that develops mm-hmm. when you do a big en bloc removal of these organs. But it really has to do with these anatomical differences, and it has nothing to do with a lower pain threshold, et cetera. And, and I think, quite frankly, the idea that you're t- it takes more time. You know, mm-hmm. Is this male gastroenterologist allotting three times as much time for a colonoscopy in his female patient as he may be in his male patient? And that's you know another thing to take into account too, because you just, you know, you just have to go around these loops. You have to do what's called reducing the scope, pulling back to straighten out kinks in the scope. So it really, I mean, I, I see it all the time when I'm doing colonoscopy, like, wow, this is a completely different organ. I, I'd like to do a test because I think that blinded without knowing the patient, you know, whether this was male oh, or female, I yeah. think I could tell. From yeah. the colon, but we'll see. Yeah. Maybe not with a hundred percent accuracy, but that would be sort of a cool test.
0: Yeah. And I think yeah. that, you know, it actually speaks to this like historical and systemic issue of women in medicine of Uh, you know, predominantly men saying, oh, well, women's hormones are just too pesky and too hard to accommodate in our clinical trials, or we don't know how to account for this. And it's just, you know, we're just not going to include them. Um, And so it also sounds like this colonoscopy completion rate is, oh, well, women don't have as much pain. They are, they, they can't handle as much pain or whatever, but it's like, oh, those pesky female colons. And it's like, Hey, even if they're pesky and longer and more twisted, like that doesn't mean that we get to have a like, well, let's blame it on the patient, pull it out. Like, you know, women deserve all the things,
1: you know, that's so true. And it speaks to a lot of the things, you know, we're in this new era in gastroenterology. Now, if I think back to, my early years as a practicing gastroenterologist and my training, we were really dealing with a different set of conditions. We were, it was all about, you know, ulcers that you could see, gallstones that you could see, colitis that you could see, colon cancer and polyps. Now we're in an era where these functional bowel problems when we think about things like irritable bowel syndrome and leaky gut and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and dysbiosis, you can't actually see any of these things. And so if you don't understand the mechanisms behind them, they're not good tests for most of these things. It is often really understanding the patient's history and the symptoms are manifesting and putting it together. So if you don't have a nuanced understanding of this, and you're looking for some big obvious goomba in the gut to explain what's going on, you are going to write this off and say, oh, you know, it's just your hormones, or as you said, you know, it's just sort of pesky colon. And um, we still see a lot of that. And it really so much of this just takes time, you know, it takes time to sit down and talk to somebody and really get a lay of the land. And we don't have a lot of time in medicine, at least the way medicine is typically practiced does not allow for a lot of that, right? It's a very straightforward diagnostic process. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a, um, a few touch points in women's health and
0: how it associates or relates to potentially with the GI. So, uh, period poop, why do period, why does poop change when you're on your period? Uh and men who are listening may have very for, for the very first time heard about this. May they may, may not even have known that we did this. This is a thing. Yeah. So can you tell us about that?
1: Absolutely. Think about cervical mucus too, right? In your cervix. That changes relative to where you are in your cycle, whether you're, you know, just finished a period, ovulating, about to have a period. And a good gynecologist can sample that cervical mucus and actually tell where you are in your cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Or tell if you're pregnant, can tell if the, depending on the viscosity of the mucus, how thick or thin it is, can tell whether you're at risk for preterm labor. So that that composition of mucus is really important. And a lot of that is guided by what's happening hormonally with estrogen and progesterone levels, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing with a lot of the mucus in the gut too the mucus production, of the gut, again, remember, it's all one integrated system, right? It's not like the digestive tract <laughs> there in its cave, and two caves down, we have the reproductive tract, and three caves up, we have the central nervous system. It's all communicating. And that sort of menstrual cycle, as well as menopause and menarche too, as the beginning and the end of the reproductive years really figure in greatly into the digestive tract. Some of that communication is definitely hormonal with fluctuating estrogen and progesterone levels. Some of it is literally anatomical because organs are next door neighbors. Mm-hmm. And some of it is probably more functional to do with motility, secretion of digestive enzymes, et cetera. It's a little bit different for every person, but I see it a lot with my IBD patients. They'll tell me like right before their period, their stools get really loose or, you know, the stools are more formed at different times. It's a definitely mm-hmm. a very real phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, and it's normal, right? It's normal. Now, you know, depending on like if you're having florid diarrhea to the point yeah, where you're, you're you know, like, dehydrated with your period, yeah. that is definitely not something normal. that should be looked <laughs> into. But it's definitely normal to have a range of consistency with your bowel movements that does tend to cycle with yeah. your menstrual cycle is yeah. not at all abnormal. Yeah.
0: Again something that I experienced as a, as a woman, uh, growing up, you know, but was like, no one told me, you know, and I just was like, well, this is, I guess my experience, you know, now I'm like a woman who talks about vaginas all day. And I'm like, oh, everyone has different period <laughs> poops. Cool. We, no one told us, um, another question, uh, GI track in pregnancy. What, you know, I've heard about a lot of constipation with women and, you know, when giving birth and bowel movements and stuff like that. So tell us about the relationship and complications potentially with pregnancy in the GI.
1: Yeah, again, there's three if you think in terms of those three categories right of anatomical hormonal and physiological so anatomical in an area that was already crowded now it's really crowded <laughs> yeah. now you got a fetus you got a baby in there too and also the uterus can move around a little bit and this can happen during pregnancy it can happen In somebody who's never been pregnant, just as a pelvic floor shifts with age, the uterus Mm -hmm. can tip, it can retrovert or antivert, it can press on the colon, fibroids can do it, endometriosis. So again, these are really close next door neighbors. It's almost like you've got the upstairs apartment and the downstairs apartment, right? If you've got a leak upstairs, you're going to look up and see water coming through your roof. They're really closely juxtapositioned. So the the anatomical changes in pregnancy are really significant. You also have fluid shifts too, right? Because you're maintaining that amniotic fluid. And a lot of the fluid balance in the body is maintained through the digestive tract and control. The kidneys figure in greatly here in terms of filtering the fluids, but also the gut. So how much of that, when the products of digestion which is my polite way of saying the stool, Mm -hmm. comes through the small intestine and hits the colon it's liquid it's a green bilious looking liquid stream yeah okay (laughs) and and then in the colon a lot of dead um, bacteria and some bile gets pulled out and dead bacteria get dumped in and the color eventually changes to more brown. And a lot of the fluid, the liquid gets reabsorbed through the lining of the colon. So that you end up with a nice, you go from like a greenish liquid to a more formed brown stool at the end. But in terms of managing the body's fluid balances, and again, the kidney is very involved, but the gut is also involved. So depending on what's going on with the pregnancy and the amniotic fluid needs, more fluid could be pulled out of that, you know, colonic effluent, if you will. And you may end up with a much harder stool or less food could be pulled out, and you could end up with a looser stool. So that's another way that you know the bowel movements might be affected by what's going on with the pregnancy. And then, of course, hormonally, estrogen and progesterone and estrogen in particular can affect the motility, the GI tract, the secretion of some of the enzymes, can affect the microbiome, what's going on with gut bacteria. And it really is, you know, it is so important, I think, for people to realize that this is an integrated system. So if you take medication for a headache, for example, it may fix your headache, but it may pop up with different problems elsewhere in your body. And then you sort Mm -hmm. of whack it with something else and something else pops up here. So it's important to think if you think about aspirin, it can be life-saving from for a cardiologist patient with keeping vessels open, but it can cause fatal gastrointestinal bleeding for my patient. Wow. Yeah.
0: It's, you know, That that's integrated medicine, right? We (laughs) need to all talk. Speaking of hormones, is um one of the symptoms of menopause changes in your bowels? Absolutely. Really? Cause I don't uh, feel like
1: I've ever heard that or talked about it yet. So let's do that. Absolutely. So around menopause, women tend to become more constipated in general. And some of that is just a general dryness in the body. So there's vaginal dryness, and there's almost sort of like a gut dryness too, that goes along with that. And women will often complain of more constipation, more bloating, there's redistribution of body fat. So even for women who've never had a belly will all of a sudden tend to be depositing more weight around the middle I was giving a talk, a Q&A yesterday for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And one of the questions that popped up from the audience was um, this issue about belly fat in, in middle age and postmenopausally. And I responded that so many women will come to me and say, I don't understand what's going on. All of a sudden, I have a belly and I'm not doing anything differently from what I've yeah. done for 20 years. And I'll say that's exactly why that's happening because you haven't done anything differently because your body is very Uh different now at 55 than it was at 35, but you haven't made the shifts. You haven't made the dietary shifts, et cetera. So understanding that the same way, the way you process food, the way you move, the way you live at 10 is different from what you do at 20. Right. And you respond differently. And then 20 is different from 50 and you know, it just keeps changing. So anticipating those changes, understanding those changes, And I think most importantly, is really listening to the feedback your body's giving you. So it's not a matter of, you know, what the ad said you should do on TV for menopause, or what your friend Mm -hmm. told you, or maybe even what your OBGYN is advising. I mean, hopefully your OBGYN is giving you really good advice. But it's also that intuitive relationship you have with your body. Mm -hmm. And just like, I mean, we go through so many changes as women, right? When we first start to menstruate, within a month with our cycle, with our menstrual cycle, for those of us who've been pregnant, menopause, all of these different things. And if you're really paying attention to that feedback your body's giving you, and you're not just trying to suppress everything all the time with the medication, you can get into a really deep, meaningful dialogue. Mm -hmm. And, And I'll give you an example. So I um, have done some research with a wonderful group in town in in D.C., a group called the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and the founders, Dr. Neil Barnard, they have a, a plant-based Medicine agenda, but you don't have to be fully plant based to appreciate all the great work they do. Like right now, they're doing a petition to try and get the food in hospitals improved because you know what? They serve sausage and bacon in hospitals that are known carcinogens with the nitrate. So, like, <laughs> oh my okay, God. like, yeah, why should I be receiving Might a, as well bring on... a
0: pack of smokes? You know, really? <laughs> exactly. So, they,
1: they do really good policy work like that. But they published a study, and this wasn't the research I worked with them on, but they published a study and they found that women who are menopausal, who are having hot flashes and menopausal symptoms, if they changed to a plant-based diet, a lot of those symptoms went away. And in wow. the study, I believe, I don't have it in front of me, I read it a few weeks ago, but I think in the study it was equivalent or better than hormonal therapy wow. is switching the diet. And so I was mentioning it to a patient of mine and I was like, look, you don't necessarily have to be a vegan, but why don't you try having a plant-based dinner, right? Mm -hmm. Like have your animal protein for breakfast and lunch and for dinner, have a plant-based dinner. Alcohol. We know that alcohol is a huge trigger for hot flashes because Mm -hmm. of the vasodilation. So if you eat more plants and you drink less alcohol, that's huge. But of course people want to have alcohol, have a porterhouse. And still feel good, yeah. And that is basically, typically, not have a having a meaningful dialogue with your body because yeah. if you make these changes, your body will usually give you that feedback. And and remember that that feedback is your body having your back, right? Like wanting to lead you down that healthy path. I always I'm always sort of musing about like, hmm. Imagine if you never got a hung, hangover. Imagine if you could just like drink endlessly, endless bottles of champagne. And you felt fine, many people would die from alcohol poisoning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so there's true. a reason yeah. There's yep. a reason that you start to feel bad and you yeah. feel bad the next day because that is the dialogue. That's your body saying, yeah, that's not good, yeah. right? And it is a it is a way of kind of stopping you from literally destroying your liver
0: yeah. with
1: alcohol or eating like a huge big fatty meal late at night and getting reflux. That's not mm-hmm. a disease, that's just feedback. That's a dialogue <laughs> that your body's having with you. And I, I think as woman, I don't know because I've never been a man, but no. I think the dialogue is really is really meaningful and strong mm-hmm. with women. And maybe I don't know, maybe we pay more attention. Um, and you know, I realize that's a huge generalization, but um there's sort of like an intuitive piece to that, that maybe because our bodies change more like men don't start menstruating as you know early teenagers and then don't stop I mean they do talk about the male menopause but not really um men don't really carry children bear children the same way we do men don't breastfeed I mean there are a lot of changes that happen in the female body that really just don't happen in the male body there I mean mm. there's just a lot more excitement going on with us yeah. frankly
0: and you know for myself I'm you know a survivor I have PTSD and I've had to work really hard over the years especially last decade to get re in touch with my body because some one of my symptoms was to just kind of numb my body and live in a logical brain world. Uh, and that's not healthy, you know, and I had a lot of health issues because I just was not listening to my body. And if it offered me any signals, I'd be like, Nope, Nope, Nope. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. And now I'm like, hey, body, like literal dialogue, like, oh, hmm, you feel like this? Okay, well, let's get curious about that, not judge it or, you know, and like, and when I was first suggested to do those things, I was like, this is crazy witchcraft, like I'm a scientist, but no, it's really, it is biology talking to your body and having your body talk back.
1: It is, but and that's, that's so interesting what you just shared about, you know, kind of just numbing down everything neck Mm -hmm. down of not wanting to, you know, experience those things. And it just makes me wonder, like how many women might be in that same position, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. Literally trying yeah. to not have that conversation. Yeah. 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 yeah, part of my PTSD was
0: manifested into like an eating disorder. And I literally had to learn like, what does full feel like? You know, like what does true hunger feel like? And I actually have a hunger that I used to think was hunger for food, but it's actually a hunger for a hug you know? And it's like really interesting that it was like both coming from my stomach, but it actually had different actual desires based on, well, is it food? Like, let me ask it a little bit further before I just stuff my face with ice cream, you know, to like get rid of the feeling, you know, and then I still have it, you know? Yeah. It's
1: a completely real thing. This idea. I mean, I, I talk to my patients about it a lot. This idea of the, emotional food and what kind of hunger right you have the real food and the emotional food and when the emotional food is low the real food tends to you try to compensate with that yeah
0: yeah i uh oh my god we could just literally talk all day we have two last questions but what i'll say is that i i personally have a belief that um So I have a lot of mom issues, don't we all? A mom and dad issues. And so whenever I was like working on my mom issues, I craved ice cream. And I would jokingly say with my friends, like, oh, you know, mother's milk. I'm like, you know, but actually I really think that there was some like inner things in there where it was like, no, no, no. I'm like seeking lactose. (laughs) Like I'm literally seeking some kind of motherly maternal, uh, like something to soothe me and that was I, froyo you know um.
1: I am so glad you mentioned that cuz when people ask me about dairy I'm like well you know you are suckling a postpartum cow and I don't <laughs> yeah. know if we're supposed to be doing that as yeah. grown ups I personally don't think so not to say yep. that I don't enjoy a little bit of froyo here and there yeah. but but you're the first person I've ever heard talk about it in that sense of literally like nursing you know for comfort Oh yeah that oh, way. I mean,
0: I've been in enough therapy to have the data, my personal data set of like, oh yeah, when I'm deep in mom issue stuff and in, in counseling, my fro yo weight increases exponentially. Like it's yeah. actually quantified based on the weight of my fro yo. So I always I kind of had a mental like note, like, okay, if it's over 10 pounds, like I'm in a spot where I need to call a friend. Like this is not <laughs> you are not in a good healthy spot. If you're like five dollar fro yo, you're in your feels, but you can do it two, $3 dollars fro is like, okay, this is like a casual fun activity. So anyways, my own <laughs> two cents on that. Um, I have two last questions. I hate ending sure, this true. interview. This has been so much fun. But our last two questions are, uh, we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs that listen, a lot of college students, grad students. What's an area in women's health and wellness that still needs innovating that they may be able to work on?
1: Medicine in general is so ripe for disruption, you guys. I mean, I cannot believe that we still, you know, the patients have to drive, they have to park, they have to sit in the doctor's office, they have to wait. They get their seven minutes, they leave. They're like, "Huh, you haven't solved any of my problems." I mean, we've seen it in other areas, and we're seeing it a lot in the coaching area. So there's accessibility piece, and Mm -hmm. that's everything from you know scheduling, direct communications, etc. How do you access it? The pandemic, it's been one of the you know, few beneficial things as a result of this pandemic, especially Mm -hmm. considering the tragic loss of life, etc., is that it has opened up avenues for telehealth and and made things more accessible. But medicine is really slow to innovate in general. So Mm -hmm. I think there's so much opportunity just around that how that whole thing works yeah. with a doctor visit, right? And yep. the truth is the best people to innovate are not the physicians because we're just used to it. It's like, well, this is yeah. just how it is. So that's it's, my job. It's,
0: like, yeah. Yeah, it's a disgruntled
1: <laughs> patient who was like, this is nuts. Like I had to drive an hour and 15 minutes and then you've kept me waiting 45 minutes and I've yep. spent three hours for the seven minute visit. Mm-hmm. Totally unacceptable. So please guys, figure out a way to make that better. Yeah. I love um, it. That's number one. I think another thing and it's just really I I've just transitioned my practice literally this week I mean we haven't even sent the announcement out by the time this airs we will have but we're really transforming our practice to completely virtual and more disease specific group-based journeys if you will because I think about you know a patient comes in with newly diagnosed Crohns they sit down, I spend an hour with them I go through you know the A disease of IBD then the second, visit, they come in and we talk about medications. And the third visit, we they come in and we talk about flare-ups. And the fourth, and I think this is so inefficient. I'm doing this, you know, 14 times a day, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's inefficient. And there's also, I think there's this, I always say we live differently, but we suffer similarly. Mm. So when you have a condition, particularly something like an autoimmune disease, you're typically diagnosed young, it can be very life altering and it can be devastating, quite frankly. And I think there's something about being in a community of other people who are having the same experience that can be really empowering. Oh, yeah, so we're absolutely. looking now at disease specific. We have a course called drug-free IBD immun- uh, remission without immunosuppression. And of course it's not necessarily drug-free, but trying to help people figure out how to avoid the more harmful, which tend to also be the more potent drugs that suppress mm-hmm. the immune system, etc. And I've just seen like, even on a smaller scale, connecting like you know, I'll ask a patient, Hey, you know, what do you think about me connecting you with this other patient? Who's also going through the same thing. Who's told me she's very willing to chat with somebody Mm -hmm. going through the same experience. And it's always so positive. You know, it's always like, I mean, it's almost like the matchmaking. Right. And I have so many patients who are now friends and Mm -hmm. sources of support for each other, whether it's a pregnancy and somebody who doesn't have a colon or a newly diagnosed celiac patient or whatever it is. So, I think if you can also figure out ways to connect people um, and, you know, there's HIPAA, Privacy Portability Act, all Mm. kinds of things that can be obstacles, but really that empowering feeling of this other person is having a parallel experience. I don't think we've capitalized on that enough in medicine and anything really to empower the patient. That's always my thing. Like I want to be superfluous. Like I want it to be so that my patient literally doesn't need me. They can just wave mm. at me when they see me, like, you know, at the farmer's market or something, but they've got it. Yeah. And the way to do that is you have to put really reliable, clinically validated, scientifically backed information in people's hands. And unfortunately, a lot of what's out there on the internet is just commerce, right? It's just somebody mm-hmm. trying to sell you a supplement and it's nonsense, a lot of it. And it's really taking advantage of people when they're at their most desperate, because when you have been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease or all your hair is falling out or you're tired and you can't get off the couch and you don't know why, you're desperate and you're often willing to fork over a bunch of cash for what looks like a cure, a solution. Yep, yep. So some ways to vet the information out there better. It's kind of the oh, wild west. That. Yeah, You you don't know if this is really a cure for cancer or this is just pure nonsense. And so I think the vetting piece really needs to get better.
0: Robin, I have so many thoughts, but I will (laughs) tell them all to you offline because we got one last question, which is what does the femtech industry as a whole need the most right now in order to be successful?
1: I know you're going to ask me this later, but I was thinking about it on my run today about femtech. and. I think about it in a more general way, like what just sort of conjured up when I was thinking about it today was it's woman moving passionately and powerfully and with purpose through the world, right? And I almost like see this woman striding. Mm -hmm. And because many of us are women and because technology is everywhere and it is just a part of our life now, it's interwoven, you can't do anything without it. It is really that it's not even like, well, these industries are femtech and these are not. I think if a woman is doing something purposefully, powerfully with passion, that is femtech. Mm. And we really need to support each other. And we need support, not just from other women, but from men too, we need more support for women who are doing these things. I mean, the numbers in terms of the venture capital, et cetera, is really horrendous still for women mm. and for women of color. I mean, it's just pathetic. So yeah. we need we need ways, and I know you're working on this and in this field mm. to support other women who have good ideas who are doing things that are going to make life better for all of us, right? And um, we need to make that to figure out how, you know those obstacles, whether it is like I don't even understand what the jargon is around the business stuff, like I have a good idea, but I don't understand the Mm -hmm. back end, or whether it's the front end piece or the incubation, whatever it is, um, more opportunity for for women to get there. I'm on the board of an organization called the Squash and Education Alliance, and we work with, with underserved kids, really, and providing them with opportunities to be squash players and also with educational opportunities and it, you know, I think about what that organization does and the camps that they do and the afterschool programs that they do and all the work that they do to make those barriers of entry kind of fall away or to at least lower the bar so that people can enter. Mm-hmm. And I think about the same thing here, right? Like how do you help somebody get in? And it doesn't, like if you have a venture capital fund or something great, right? You're in private equity and you wanna make sure you are helping women. But it can even be talking to a friend, somebody Mm -hmm. I met a a mom of a friend of my daughter's who is a kick ass businesswoman. And she teaches female entrepreneurship at a local university. And she mentioned to me casually that she wanted to write a book. I was like, hey, I know how to do that. I've written three of those and I'm on number four. Like, let's go to lunch and I'll tell you all about that process. So, you know, it's that sisterhood of like, just just help somebody out if you can.
0: Even 15-minute calls, you know, dedicating two 15-minute slots a week to, for somebody to book you and ask questions, you know. Uh, Robin, you are amazing.
1: Thank you so much for your time today. This has been awesome. Thank you, Brittany. And thanks for all the fantastic work you do with Femtech Focus. It's amazing. Thank you for listening to my
0: interview with Dr. Robin Shetkin. If you want to learn more about her work in published books, go to her website at gutbliss.com. That's gutbliss.com. Alrighty, Fem fans, don't forget to make an end-of-year donation to Femtech Focus. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, and if you donate $100 or more, you'll be sent a donor gift of your choice. Please give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other Femtech founders, investors, and mentors advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up to be a FemPro member for $10 a month and get access to the FemTech Institute, a library of FemTech and startup lessons that are sure to help you advance your company or teach you more about the industry in general. Keep an eye out for our monthly FemTech book club coming up on the last Wednesday of every month and subscribe to our newsletter. Again, please consider setting up a recurring donation to FemTech Focus, especially for our year-end fundraising campaign. KFM fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.